two. Run away, run away, or I'll catch you in a day. I can make you scream and play till my father goes away. Which one, which one, that one, that one. Just run, just run, just run. As always when I was troubled, I sought out my father, Nahadoth. He was not difficult to find. Amid the vastness of the god's realm, he was like a massive, drifting storm, terrifying for those in his path and cathartic in his wake. From any direction, one could look into the distance and there he was, defying logic as a matter of course, almost as noticeable, were the lesser presences that drifted nearby, drawn toward all that heavy, dark glory, even though it might destroy them. I beheld my siblings in all their variety and sparkling beauty, Elanted, Manasset, and even a few of my fellow Niwa. Many lay prostrate before our dark father, or strained toward the black unlight that was his core, their souls open for the most fleeting droplets of his approval. He played favorites, though, and many of them had served Etempus. They would be waiting a long time. For me, however, there was welcome on the wind as I traveled through the storm's outermost currents. The layered walls of his presence shifted aside, each in a different direction, to admit me. I caught the looks of envy from my less favored siblings and gave them glares of contempt in return, staring down the stronger ones until they turned away. Craven, useless creatures. Where had they been when Naha needed them? Let them beg his forgiveness for another two thousand years. As I passed through the last shiver, I found myself taking corporeal form, a good sign that, when he was in a foul mood, he abandoned form altogether and forced any visitors to do the same. Better still, there was light, a night sky overhead, dominated by a dozen pale moons, all drifting in different orbits and waxing and waning and shifting from red through gold through blue. Beneath it, a stark landscape, deceptively flat and still, broken here and there by line-sketched trees and curving shapes too attenuated to qualify as hills. My feet touched ground made of tiny mirrored pebbles that jumped and rattled and vibrated like frenzied living things. They sent a delicious buzz through my souls. The trees and hills were made of the glittering pebbles, too, and the sky and moons, for all I knew. Nahadoth was fond of playing with expectations. And beneath the sky's cool kaleidoscope, shaping himself in an aimless sort of way, my father. I went to him and knelt, watching and worshiping, as his shape blurred through several forms and his limbs twisted in ways that had nothing to do with grace, though occasionally he grew graceful by accident. He did not acknowledge my presence, though of course he knew I was there. Finally he finished and fell, purposefully onto a couch-like throne that formed itself as I watched. At this I rose and went to stand beside him. He did not look at me, his face turned toward the moons and shifting only slightly now, mostly just reacting to the colors of the sky. His eyes were shut, only the long dark lashes remaining the same as the flesh around them changed. My loyal one, he said. The pebbles hummed with the low reverberations of his voice. Have you come to comfort me?
I opened my mouth to say yes, and then paused, startled, as I realized this was not true. Nahadoth glanced at me, laughed softly and not without cruelty, and widened his couch. He knew me too well. Shamed, I climbed up beside him, nestling into the drifting curve of his body. He petted my hair and back, though I was not in the cat's shape. I enjoyed the caresses anyhow. I hate them, I said, and I don't. Because you know as I do that some things are inevitable. I groaned and flung an arm over my eyes dramatically, though this only served to press the image into my thoughts. Yaney and the Tempest straining together, gazing at each other in mutual surprise and delight. What would be next? Naha and the Tempest? All three of them together? Which existence had not seen since the demon's time? I lowered my arm and looked at Nahadoth and saw the same sober contemplation on his face. Inevitable. I bared my teeth and let them grow cat sharp and set up to glare at him. You want that selfish, thick-headed bastard, don't you? I've always wanted him, Sia. Hatred does not exclude desire. He met the time before Anifa's birth, when he and Etempis had gone from enemies to lovers. But I chose to interpret his words more immediately, manifesting claws and digging them into the drifting expanse of him. Think of what he did to you, I said, flexing and sheathing. I could not hurt him, would not even if I could. But there were many ways to communicate frustration. To us, Naha, I know you will change, must change, but you need not change this way. Why go back to what was before? Which before? That made me pause in confusion, and he sighed and rolled onto his back, adopting a face that sent its own wordless message, white-skinned and black-eyed and emotionless, like a mask. The mask he had worn for the Aramary during our incarceration. The past is gone, he said. Mortality made me cling to it though that is not my nature, and it damaged me. To return to myself, I must reject it. I have had a tempest as an enemy. That holds no more appeal for me. And there is an undeniable truth here, Sia. We have no one but each other. He and I and Yaney. At this I slumped on him in misery. He was right, of course. I had no right to ask him to endure again the hells of loneliness he had suffered in the time before a tempest. And he would not, because he had Yaney and their love was a powerful, special thing. But so had been his love with a tempest once. And when all three had been together, how could I, who had never known such fulfillment, begrudge him? He would not be alone, whispered a small, furious voice in my most secret heart. He would have me. But I knew all too well how little a godling had to offer a god. Cold white fingers touched my cheek, my chin, my chest. You are more troubled by this than you should be, said Nahadoth. What is wrong? I burst into frustrated tears. I don't know. Shh. Shh. She, Nahadoth had changed already adapting to me because she knew I preferred women for some things, set up, 
pulling me into her lap, and held me against her shoulder while I wept and hitched fitfully. This made me stronger, as she had known it would. And when the squall passed and nature had been served, I drew a deep breath. I don't know, I said again, calm now. Nothing is right anymore. I don't understand the feeling, but it's troubled me for some while now. It makes no sense. She frowned. This is not about a tempest. No. Reluctantly, I lifted my head from her soft breast and reached up to touch her more rounded face. Something is changing in me, Naha. I feel it like a vice gripping my soul, tightening slowly. But I don't know who holds it or turns it, nor how to wriggle free. Soon I might break. Naha frowned and began to shift back toward male. It was a warning. She was not as quick to anger as he was. He was male most of the time these days. Something has caused this. His eyes glinted with sudden suspicion. You went back to the mortal realm, to sky. Damnation. We were all, we and Nifida, still sensitive to the stench of that place. No doubt, I would have Jacarn on my doorstep soon, demanding to know what madness had afflicted me. That had nothing to do with it either, I said, scowling at his overprotectiveness. I just played with some mortal children, era married children. Oh, gods, the moons were going dark, one by one, and the mirror pebbles had begun to rattle ominously. The air smelled of ice and the acrid sting of dark matter. Where was Yaini when I needed her? She could always calm his temper. Yes, Naha, and they had no power to harm me or even to command me as they once did. And I felt the wrongness before I went there. It had been why I'd followed Yaini, feeling restless and angry and in search of excuses for both. They were just children. His eyes turned to black pits, and suddenly I was truly afraid. You love them. I went very still, wondering which was the greater blasphemy, Yaini loving the Tempest or me loving our slave masters. He had never hurt me in all the eons of my life, I reminded myself. Not intentionally. Just children, Naha, I said again, speaking softly but I couldn't deny his words. I loved them. Was that why I had decided not to kill Shahar, breaking the rules of my own game? I hung my head in shame. I'm sorry. After a long, frightening moment, he sighed. Some things are inevitable. He sounded so disappointed that my heart broke. I... I hitched again and for a moment hated myself for being the child I was. Hush now, no more crying. With a soft sigh, he rose, holding me against his shoulder effortlessly. I want to know something. The couch dissolved back into the shivering bits of mirror, and the landscape vanished with it. Darkness enclosed us, cold and moving, and when it resolved, I gasped and clutched at him for we had traveled via his will into the blistering chasm at the edge of the god's realm, which contained, insofar as the unknowable can be contained, the maelstrom. The monster itself lay below, 
far below a swirling miasma of light and sound and matter and concept and emotion and moment. I could hear its thought-numbing roar echoing off the wall of torn stars that kept the rest of reality relatively safe from its ravenings. I felt my form tear as well, unable to maintain coherence under the onslaught of image-thought music. I abandoned it quickly. Flesh was a liability in this place. Naha! He still held me against him, yet I had to shout to be heard. What are we doing here? Nahadoth had become something like the maelstrom, churning and raw and formless, singing a simpler echo of its toneless songs. He did not answer at first, but he had no sense of time in this state. I schooled myself to patience. He would remember me eventually. After a time, he said, I have felt something different here, too. I frowned in confusion. What? In the maelstrom? How he could comprehend anything of this morass was beyond me, quite literally. In my younger, stupider days, I had dared to play in this chasm, risking everything to see how deeply I could dive, how close I could get to the source of all things. I could go deeper than all my siblings, but the three could go deeper still. Yes, Nahadoth said at length. I wonder. He began to move downward toward the chasm. Too stunned to protest at first, I finally realized he was actually taking me in. Naha! I struggled, but his grip was steel and gravity. Naha, damn you! Do you want me dead? Just kill me yourself if so. He stopped, and I kept shouting at him, hoping reason would somehow penetrate his strange thoughts. Eventually it did, and to my immense relief, he began to ascend. I could have kept you safe, he said with a hint of reproof. Yes, until you lost yourself in the madness and forgot I was there. But I was not a complete fool, I said instead. Why were you taking me there anyhow? There is a resonance. What? The chasm and the roar vanished. I blinked. We stood in the mortal realm on a branch of the world tree, facing the unearthly white glow of sky. It was nighttime, of course, with a full moon, and the stars had shifted fractionally. A year had passed. It was the night before I was to meet the twins a third time. There is a resonance, Nahadoth said again. He was a darker blotch against the tree's bark. You and the maelstrom the future or the past, I cannot tell which. I frowned. What does that mean? I don't know. Has it ever happened before? No. Naha. I swallowed my frustration. He did not think as lesser beings did. It was necessary to move in spirals and leaps to follow him. Will it hurt me? I suppose that's all that matters. He shrugged as if he did not care though his brows had furrowed. He wore his sky face again. This close to the palace where we had both endured so many hells, I did not like it as much. I will speak to Yaney, he said. I shoved my hands into my pockets and hunched my shoulders, kicking at a spot of moss on the bark beneath my feet. Andy Tempest? To my relief, Nahadoth uttered a dry, malicious laugh. 
Inevitable is not the same as immediate, Zia, and love does not mandate forgiveness. With that, he turned away, his shadows already blending with those of the tree and the night horizon. Remember that with your Aramary pets. Then he was gone. The clouds above the world wavered for an instant with his passing, and then reality became still. Troubled beyond words, I became a cat and climbed the branch to a knot the size of a building, around which clustered several smaller branches that were dotted with the tree's triangle-shaped leaves and silvery flowers. There I curled up, surrounded by Yaney's comforting scent to await the next day. And I wondered, with no surcease, since I no longer had to sleep, why my insides felt hollow and shaky with dread. With time to kill before the meeting, I amused myself, if one can call it amusing, by wandering the palace in the hours before dawn. I started in the underpalace, which had so often been a haven for me in the old days, and discovered that it had indeed been entirely abandoned, not just the lowest levels, which had always been empty, save the apartments I and the other Anifida had inhabited, but all of it, the servants' kitchens and dining halls, the nurseries and schoolrooms, the sewing salons and haircutters. All the parts of Sky dedicated to the lowbloods who made up the bulk of its population. By the look of things, no one had been in the underpalace to do more than sweep in years. No wonder Shahar and Dakarta had been so frightened that first day. On the overpalace levels, at least, there were servants about, None of them saw me as they went about their duties, and I didn't even bother to shape myself in almond form or hide in a pocket of silence. This was because even though there were servants, there weren't many of them, not nearly as many as there had been in my slave days. It was a simple matter to step around a curve of corridor when I heard one walking toward me, or spring up to cling to the ceiling if I was caught between two. Useful fact. Mortals rarely look up. Only once was I forced to use magic, and that not even my own, faced with an inescapable convergence of servants who would surely spot me otherwise. I stepped into one of the lift alcoves, where some long-dead scrivener's activation bounced me up to another level. Criminally easy. It should not have been so easy for me to stroll about. I mused as I continued to do so. I had reached the high blood levels by this point, where I did have to be a bit more careful. There were fewer servants here, but more guards, wearing the ugliest white livery I'd ever seen, and swords and crossbows and hidden daggers, if my fleshly eyes did not deceive me. There had always been guards in Sky, a small army of them, but they had taken pains to remain unobtrusive in the days when I'd lived there. They had dressed the same as the servants and had never worn weapons that could be seen. The Aramary preferred to believe that guards were unnecessary, and they hadn't been, in truth, back then. Any significant threat to the palace's highbloods would have forced us in Nifida to transport ourselves to the site of danger, and that would have been the end of it. So, I considered as I stepped through a wall to avoid an unusually attentive guard it seemed the Aramary had been forced to protect themselves more conventionally. Understandable, but how did that account for the diminished number of servants? 
a mystery. I resolved to find out if I could. Stepping through another wall, I found myself in a room that held a familiar scent. Following it, and tiptoeing past the nurse dozing on the sitting room couch, I found Shahar, asleep in a good-sized four-poster bed. Her perfect blonde curls spread prettily over half a dozen pillows. Though I stifled a laugh at her face, mouth open, cheek mashed on one folded arm, and a line of drool down that arm forming a puddle on the pillow. She was snoring quite loudly and did not stir when I went over to examine her toy shelf. One could learn a great deal about a child from her play. Naturally, I ignored the toys on the highest shelves. She would want her favorites within easy reach. On the lower shelves, someone had been cleaning the things and keeping them in good order. So it was hard to spot the most worn of the items. Sense revealed much, however, and three things in particular drew me closer. The first was a large stuffed bird of some sort. I touched my tongue to it and tasted a toddler's love, fading now. The second was a spyglass, light, but solidly made so as to withstand being dropped by clumsy hands. Perhaps she used it to look down at the city or up at the stars. It had an air of wonder that made me smile. The third item, which made me stop short, was a scepter. It was beautiful, intricate, a graceful twisting rod marbled with bright jewel tones down its length. A work of art, not made of glass, though it appeared to be. Glass would have been too fragile to give to a child. No, this was tinted daystone, the same substance as the palace's walls. Very difficult to shatter, among its other unique properties. I knew that very well, since I and my siblings had created it. Which was why, centuries ago, a family head had commissioned this and other such scepters from his first scrivener and had given it to the Aramary heir as a toy. To learn the feel of power, he had said. And since then, many little Aramary boys and girls had been given a scepter on their third birthday, which most of them promptly used to whack pets, other children, and servants into painful obedience. The last time I had seen one of these scepters, it had been a modified adult version of the thing on Shahar's shelf. Fitted with a knife blade, the better to cut my skin to ribbons. The perversion of a child's toy had made each slice burn like acid. I glanced back at Shahar. Fair Shahar. Air Shahar. Someday, Lady Shahar Aramary. A very few Aramary children would not have used the scepter, but Shahar, I felt certain, was not so gentle. She would have wielded it with glee at least once. Deka had probably been her first victim. Had her brother's cry of pain cured her of the taste for sadism? So many Aramary learned to treasure the suffering of their loved ones. I contemplated killing her. I thought about it for a long time. Then I turned and stepped through the wall into the adjoining room. A suite, yes. That, too, was traditional for Aramary twins. Side-by-side apartments, connected by a door in the bedroom, ostensibly so that the children could sleep together or apart as they desired. More than one set of Aramary twins had been reduced to a singlet thanks to such doors. 
so easy for the stronger twin to creep into the weaker one's room unnoticed, in the dark of the night while the nurses slept. Deka's room was darker than Shahar's, as it was positioned on the side of the palace that did not get moonlight. It would get less sunlight, too, I realized, for through the window wall, I could see one of the massive curling limbs of the world tree stretching into the distance against the night horizon. Its spars and branches and million, million leaves did not completely obscure the view, but any sunlight that came in would be dappled unsteady, tainted by Etempen standards. There were other indicators of Deka's less favored status. Fewer toys on the shelves, not as many pillows on the bed. I went to the bed and gazed down at him, thoughtful. He was curled on his side, neat and quiet even in rest. His nurse had done his long black hair and several plaits, perhaps in an awkward bid to give it some curl. I bent and ran my finger along one plait's smooth, rippling length. Shall I make you air? I whispered. He did not wake, and I got no answer. Moving away, I was surprised to realize none of the toys on his shelves tasted of love. Then I understood when I came to the small bookcase, which practically reeked of it. Over a dozen books and scrolls bore the stamp of childish delight. I ran my fingers along their spines, absorbing their mortal magic. Maps of faraway lands, tells of adventure and discovery. Mysteries of the natural world of which Deka probably experienced little stuck here in sky, myths and fancies. I closed my eyes and lifted my fingers to my lips, breathing the scent and sighing. I could not make a child with such a soul air. It would be the same as destroying him myself. I moved on. Through the walls, underneath a closet, over a jutting spar of the world tree that had nearly filled one of the dead spaces, and I found myself in the chambers of the Aramary head. The bedroom alone was as big as both the children's apartments combined. Large square bed at the center, positioned atop a wide, circular rug made from the skin of some white-furred animal I could not recall ever having hunted. Austere by the standards of the heads I had known, no pearls sewn into the coverlet, no darin blackwood or kenty hand-carving or shooting Narek cloud cloth. What little other furniture there was had been positioned about the edges of the vast room, out of the way. A woman who did not like impediments in any part of her life. The Lady Aramary herself was austere. She lay curled on her side, much like her son, though that was as far as a similarity went. Blonde hair, surprisingly cut short. The style framed her angular face well, I decided but it was not at all the usual almond thing. Beautiful, icy pale face, though severe even in sleep. Younger than I'd expected, late thirties at a guess. Young enough that Shahar would come of age long before she was elderly. Did she intend for Shahar's children to be the true heirs then? Perhaps this contest was not as foregone as it seemed. I looked around, thoughtful, no father, the children had said, which meant the lady had no husband in the formal sense. Did she deny herself lovers too then? I bent to inhale her scent, 
opening my mouth slightly for a better taste. And there it was. Oh, yes. The scent of another was embedded deep in her hair and skin, and even into the mattress. A single lover of some duration. Months. Perhaps years. Love, then? It was not unheard of. I would hunt amid the palace denizens to see if I could find the match to that lilting scent. The lady's apartment told me nothing about her as I visited its other chambers. A substantial library, containing nothing interesting. A private chapel complete with a tempan altar. A personal garden, too manicured to have been cared for by anything but a professional gardener. A public parlor, and a private one. The bath alone showed signs of extravagance. No mere tub here, but a pool wide and deep enough to swim with separate adjoining chambers for washing and dressing. I found her toilet in another chamber, behind a crystal panel, and laughed. The seat had been inscribed with sigils for warmth and softness. I could not resist. I changed them to ice-cold hardness. Hopefully, I could arrange to be around to hear her shout when she discovered them. By the time I finished exploring, the eastern sky was growing light with the coming dawn. So with a sigh, I left Lady Aramary's chambers, returned to the nowhere stair, and lay down at the bottom to wait. It seemed an age before the children arrived, their small feet striking a determined cadence as they came through the silent corridors. They did not see me at first, and exclaimed in dismay. Then, of course, they came down the steps and found me. You were hiding, Shahar accused. I had arranged myself on the floor, with my legs propped up against the wall. Smiling at her upside down, I said, Talking to strangers again? Will you two never learn? Descartes came over to crouch beside me. Are you a stranger to us, Sia? Even still? He reached out and poked my shoulder again, as he had done before he learned I was dangerous. He smiled shyly and blushed as he did it. Had he forgiven me then? Mortals were so fickle. I poked him back and he giggled. I don't think so, I said. But you lot are the ones who worship propriety. The way I see it, a stranger feels like a stranger, a friend feels like a friend. Simple. To my surprise, Shahar crouched as well, her small face solemn. Would you mind then? She asked with a peculiar sort of intent that made me frown at her. Being our friend? I understood all at once. The wish they'd earned from me. I expected them to choose something simple, like toys that never broke or baubles from another realm or wings to fly. But they were clever, my little Aramary pets. They would not be bribed by paltry material treasures or fleeting frivolities. They wanted something of real worth. Greedy, presumptuous, insolent, arrogant brats. I flipped myself off the wall with an awkward, ugly movement that no mortal could have easily replicated. It startled the children, and they fell back with wide eyes, sensing my anger. On my hands and toes, I glared at them. You want what? Your friendship, said Deka. His voice was firm, but his eyes looked uncertain. He kept glancing at his sister. We want you to be our friend and we'll be yours. 
For how long? They looked surprised. For as long as friendship lasts, said Shahar. Life, I guess, or until one of us does something to break it, we can swear a blood oath to make it official. Swear a... The words came out as a bestial growl. I could feel my hair turning black, my toes curling under. How dare you? Shahar, damn her and all her forebears, looked innocently confused. I wanted to tear her throat out for not understanding. What? It's just friendship. The friendship of a god. If I'd had a tail, it would have lashed. If I did this, I would be obligated to play with you and enjoy your company. After you grow up, I'd have to look you up every once in a while to see how you're doing. I'd have to care about the inanities of your life. At least try to help you when you're in trouble. My gods, do you realize I don't even offer my worshippers that much? I should kill you both for this. But to my surprise, before I could... Deka set forward and put his hand on mine. He flinched as he did it, because my hand was no longer fully human. The fingers had shortened, and the nails were in the process of becoming retractable. I kept the fur off by an effort of will. But Deka kept his hand there and looked at me with more compassion than I'd ever dreamt of seeing on an Aramary's face. All the swirling magic inside me went still. I'm sorry, he said. We're sorry. Now, too, Aramary had apologized to me. Had that ever happened when I'd been a slave? Not even Yaney had said those words, and she had hurt me terribly once during her mortal years. But Deka continued, compounding the miracle. I didn't think. You were prisoner here once. We read about it. They made you act like a friend then, didn't they? He looked over at Shahar, whose expression showed the same dawning understanding. Some of the old Aramary would punish him if he wasn't nice enough. We can't be like them. My desire to kill them flicked away like a snuffed candle. You didn't know, I said. I spoke slowly, reluctantly, forcing my voice back into the boyish higher registers where it belonged. It's obvious you don't mean what I think you meant by it. A backhanded route to servitude. Unearned blessings. I moved my nails back into place and sat up, smoothing my hair. We thought you would like it, Deka said, looking so crestfallen that I abruptly felt guilty for my anger. I thought, we thought. Yes, of course. It would have been his idea. He was the dreamer of the two. We thought we were almost friends anyway, right? And you didn't seem to mind coming to see us. So we thought if we asked to be friends, you would see we weren't the bad Aramary you think we are. You would see we weren't selfish or mean. And maybe, he faltered, lowering his eyes. Maybe then you would keep coming back. Children could not lie to me. It was an aspect of my nature. They could lie, but I would know. Neither Deka nor his sister were lying. I didn't believe them anyway, didn't want to believe them. 
didn't trust the part of my own soul that tried to believe them. It was never safe to trust Aramary, even small ones. Yet they meant it. They wanted my friendship, not out of greed, but out of loneliness. They truly wanted me for myself. How long had it been since anyone had wanted me, even my own parents? In the end, I am as easy to seduce as any child. I lowered my head, trembling a little, folding my arms across my chest so they would not notice. Um, well, if you really want to, to be friends, then I guess I could do that. They brightened at once, scooching closer on their knees. You mean it? asked Deka. I shrugged, pretending nonchalance, and flashed my famous grin. Can't hurt, can it? You're just mortals. Blood brother to mortals. I shook my head and laughed, wondering why I'd been so frightened by something so trivial. Did you bring a knife? Shahar rolled her eyes with queenly exasperation. You can make one, can't you? I was just asking, gods. I raised a hand and made a knife, just like the one she'd used to stab me in the previous year. Her smile faded, and she drew back a little at the sight of it, and I realized that was not the best choice. Closing my hand about the knife, I changed it. When I opened my hand again, the knife was curved and graceful, with a handle of lacquered steel. Shahar would not know, but it was a replica of the knife Jakarn had made for Yaini during her time in Sky. She relaxed when she saw the change, and I felt better at the grateful look on her face. I had not been fair to her. I would try harder to be so in the future. Friendships can transcend childhood, I said softly when Shahar took the knife. She paused, looking at me in surprise. They can, if the friends continue to trust each other as they grow older and change. That's easy, said Deka, giggling. No, I said, it isn't. His grin faded. Shahar, though? Yes. Here was something she understood innately. She had already begun to realize what it meant to be Aramary. I would not have her for much longer. I reached up to touch her cheek for a moment, and she blinked. But then I smiled, and she smiled back, as shy as Deka for an instant. Sighing, I held out my hands, palms up. Do it then. Shahar took my nearer hand, raising the knife, and then frowned. Do I cut the finger or across the palm? The finger, said Deka. That was how Daytonay said you do blood oaths. Daytonay is an idiot, Shahar said with the reflexiveness of an old argument. The palm, I said, more to shut them up than to take any real stance. Won't that bleed a lot and hurt? That's the idea. What good is an oath if it doesn't cost you something to make? She grimaced, but then nodded and set the blade against my skin. The cut she made was so shallow that it tickled and did not make me bleed at all. I laughed. Harder. I'm not a mortal, you know. She threw me an annoyed look, then sliced once across the palm, swift and hard. I ignored the flash of pain. Refreshing. The wound tried to close immediately, but a little concentration kept the blood welling. You do me, I do you, 
Shahar said, giving the knife to Dakarta. He took the knife and her hands and was not at all hesitant or shy about cutting his sister. Her jaw flexed, but she did not cry out. Nor did he when she made the cuts for him. I inhaled the scent of their blood, familiar despite three generations removed from the last Aramary I had known. Friends, I said. Shahar looked at her brother and he gazed back at her. And then they both looked at me. Friends, they said together. They took each other's hands first, then mine, then. Wait, what? They held my hands tight. It hurt. And why were both children crying out, their hair whipping in the wind? Where had the wind? I didn't hear you. Speak louder. This made no sense. Our hands were sealed, sealed together. I could not let them go. Yes, I am the trickster. Who calls? They were screaming. The children were screaming. Both of them had risen off the floor. Only I held them down, and why was there a grin on my face? Why? Silence. Three. I slept, and while I did, I dreamt. I did not remember some of these dreams for a long time. I was aware of very little, in fact, aside from something being wrong and perhaps a little bit of, wait, I thought what? Vague awareness, in other words. A most unpleasant state for any god. None of us is all-knowing, all-seeing. That is mortal nonsense. But we know a lot and see quite a bit. We are used to a near-constant infusion of information by means of senses no mortal possesses. But for a time, there was nothing. Instead, I slept. Suddenly, though, in the depths of the silence and vagueness, I heard a voice. It called my name, my soul with a fullness and strength that I had not heard in several mortal lifetimes. Familiar, pulling sensation. Unpleasant. I was comfortable, so I rolled over and tried to ignore it at first. But it pricked me awake, slapped me in the back to prod me forward, then shoved. I slid through an aperture in a wall of matter, like being born, or like entering the mortal realm, which was pretty much the same thing. I emerged naked and slippery with magic, my form reflexively solidifying itself for protection against the soul-devouring ethers that had once been Nahadoth's digestive fluids in the time before time. My mind dragged itself out of stupor at last. Someone had called my name. What do you want? I said, or tried to say. Though the words emerged from my lips as an unintelligible growl, Long before mortals had achieved a form worthy of imitation, I had taken the likeness of a creature that loved mischief and cruelty in equal measure, as quintessential an encapsulation of my nature as my child's shape. I still tended to default to it, though I preferred the child's shape these days. More fine control and nuance. But I had not been fully conscious when I took form in the mortal realm, and so I had become the cat.
Yet that shape was clumsy when I tried to rise, and something about it felt wrong. I wasted no time trying to understand it, simply became the boy instead, or tried to. The change did not go as it should have. It took real effort, and my flesh remolded itself with molasses-slow reluctance. By the time I had clothed myself in human skin, I was exhausted. I flopped where I had materialized, panting and shaking and wondering what in the infinite hells was wrong with me. Sia? The voice that had summoned me from the vague place. Female? Familiar and yet not. Puzzled, I tried to lift my head and turn to face the voice's owner, and found to my amazement that I could not. I had no strength. It is you. My gods, I never imagined. Soft hands touched my shoulders, pulled at me. I groaned softly as she rolled me onto my side. Something pulled at my head, painful. Why the hells was I cold? I was never cold. By the endless bright, this is. She touched my face. I turned toward her hand instinctively, nuzzling, and she gasped, jerking away. Then she stroked me again, and did not pull away when I pressed against her this time. Shah, Shahar? I said. My voice was too loud and sounded wrong. I opened my eyes as wide as I could and stared at her bug-like. Shahar? She was Shahar. I was certain of it. But something had happened to her. Her face was longer, the bones finer, the nose bridge higher. Her hair, which had been shoulder length when I'd last seen her, a moment ago, the day before, now tumbled around her body, disheveled as if she'd just woken from sleep. Waist length at least, maybe longer. Mortal hair did not grow so quickly, and not even Aramary would waste magic on something so trivial. Not these days, anyhow. Yet, when I tried to find the nearby stars to know how much time had passed, what came back to me was only a blank, unintelligible rumble, like the jabbering of memory worms. Cold, I murmured. Shahar got up and went away. An instant later, something covered me, warm and thick with the scents of her body and bird feathers. It should not have warmed me, any more than my body should have been cold to begin with. But I felt better. By this point, I could move a little. So I curled up under it gratefully. Sia. She sounded like she was regaining her composure after a deep shock. Her hand fell on my shoulder again, comforting. Not that I'm not glad to see you. She did not sound glad, not at all. But if you were ever going to come back, why now? Why here like this? This, gods, unbelievable. Why now? I had no idea since I had no idea what now meant. Of then, I remembered less thoughts than impressions. Holding her hand, holding Deka's hand. Light, wind, something out of control. Shahar's face, wide-eyed with panic, mouth open and screaming. She had been screaming. Some of my strength had returned. I used it to reach for her knee, which was a few inches from my face. My finger slid over smooth, hot skin to reach thin, fine cloth. A sleep shift. 
She gasped and jerked away. You're freezing. I'm cold. So cold that I could feel the room's moisture beginning to cling to my skin, wherever the blanket didn't cover it. I pulled my head under the blanket, or tried to. That pulling sensation again. It held my head in place, though I could move somewhat against its tension. Demon shit, what is that? Your hair, said Shahar. I froze, staring up at her. She pushed at my arm, then pulled up a lock of hair for me to see. Loose waved, dark brown, thick, and longer than her arm. Feet long. I couldn't move because I was half tangled in it. I didn't tell my hair to get that long, I said. It was a whisper. Well, tell it to get short again, or quit flopping about so I can get you loose. She flipped up the blanket and started gathering my hair, tugging and finger combing. When she turned me onto my side, my head was freed. I'd been lying on the bulk of it. My hair should not have grown. Her hair should not have grown. Tell me what's happened, I said, as she shifted me about like an oversized doll. How much time has passed since we took the oath? Took the oath? She stared down at me, an incredulous look on her face. Is that all you remember? My God, Sia, you broke the oath almost the instant you made it. I cursed in three mortal languages, loudly, to cut her off. Just tell me how much time has passed. Fury reddened her cheeks, though the pale light around us, sky's glowing walls made this difficult to see. Eight years. Impossible. I would have remembered eight years. I should have understood the anger in her voice as she snapped. Well, that's how long it's been. Not my fault if you don't remember it. I suppose you must have so many important things to do, you gods, that mortal years pass like breaths for you. They did, but we were aware of the breaths. I wanted to know more, like why she sounded so angry and hurt. Those things called to me like the sting of broken innocence, and they felt important. But they also felt like the sorts of things that needed to be softened with silence before they were brought forth sharp. So I pushed them aside and asked, Why am I so weak? How should I know? Where was I while I was gone? Sia, she let out a hard exhalation. I don't know. I haven't seen you once since the day eight years ago when you and I and Deka agreed to become friends. You tried to kill us and disappeared. Tried? I didn't try to kill you. Her face hardened further, full of hate. That meant I had tried to kill her, or at least she believed I had. I didn't intend to. Shahar, I reached for her again, instinctive this time. I could pull strength from mortal children if I had to. But when I touched her knee again, there was only a trickle of what I needed. Of course, eight years. She would be sixteen now. Not yet a woman, but close. I whimpered in frustration and pulled away. I remember nothing from that moment until now, I said, to take my mind off fear. I took your hands, and then I was here. Something is wrong. Obviously. She pinched the bridge of her nose between her fingers and let out a heavy sigh. 
Hopefully, your arrival didn't trip the boundary scripts in the walls, or there will be a dozen guards breaking down the door in a minute. I'm going to have to think of some way to explain your presence. She paused, frowning at me hopefully. Or, can you leave? That would really be the easiest solution. Yes, good for me and for her. It was obvious she didn't want me here. I didn't want to be here either. Weak and heavy and wrong feeling like this. I wanted to be with, with, wait. Was that, oh no. No, I whispered. And when she sighed in exasperation, I realized she thought I'd been responding to her question. I made a heroic effort and grabbed her hand as tight as I could, startling her. No, Shahar. How did you bring me here? Did you use scrivening? Or, or did you command it somehow? I didn't bring you here. You just showed up. No, you made me come. I felt it. You pulled me out of him. And oh, demons. Oh, hells, I could feel him coming. His fury made the whole mortal realm throb like an open wound. How could she not feel it? I shook her hand in lieu of shouting at her. You pulled me out of him, and he's going to kill you if you don't tell me right now what you did. Who? She began, and then she froze, her eyes going wide, because even she could feel it now. Of course she could, because he was in the room with us, taking shape as the glowing walls went suddenly dark, and the air trembled and hushed in reverence. See ya, said the Lord of Night. I closed my eyes and prayed Shahar would stay silent. Here, I said. An instant later, he was beside me, the drifting dark of his cloak settling around him as he knelt. Chilly fingers touched my face, and I fought the urge to laugh at my own obtuseness. I should have realized at once why I was so cold. He turned my face from side to side, examining me with more than eyes. I permitted this because he was my father, and it was his right to be concerned. But then I caught his hand. It solidified beneath my touch, and strength flowed into me from the limitless furnace of his soul. I exhaled in relief. Naha, tell me. We found you adrift, like a soul with no home, damaged. Yaney attempted to heal you and could not. I took you into myself to do the same and Nahado's womb was a cold, dark place. I don't feel healed. You aren't. I could not find a cure for your condition, nor could I preserve you. His voice, usually inflectionless, turned bitter. It was Etempis's gift to halt the progression of processes that depended on time. Nahadoth lacked this power entirely. The best I could do was keep you safe while Yaney sought a cure. But you were taken from me. I had no idea where you had gone at first. And then his dark, dark eyes lifted to settle on Shahar. She flinched, quite reasonably. I had no reason to want to save her, other than my own childish sense of honor. I had taken her innocence. I owed her. And however wrong it seemed to have gone, I had taken an oath to be her friend. So I set up carefully, not into his line of sight, 
because that was never safe, but enough to get his attention. Naha, whatever she did, she didn't do it intentionally. Her intentions do not matter, he said very softly. He did not look away from her. When you were pulled from me, it felt much like the days of our incarceration. A summons that could be neither ignored nor denied. Shahar made a soft sound, not quite a whimper, and Nahadoth's expression turned sharp and hungry. I did not blame him for his anger, but Shahar was not like the Aramari of old. She had not been raised to know the ways of gods. She did not realize that her fear could spur him to attack, because night was the time of predators, and she was acting too much like prey. Before I could think of some way to distract him, the worst occurred. She spoke. L Lord Nahadoth, she said. Her voice shook, and he leaned closer to her, his breath quickening and the room growing darker. Demon shit. But then, to my surprise, she drew a deep breath and her fear receded. Lord Nahadoth, she said again. I assure you, I did nothing to... To summon Lord Sia here? I was thinking of him, yes. She glanced at me, her expression suddenly bleak, which confused me. I spoke his name, but not because I wanted him here. Quite the opposite. I was angry. It was a curse. I stared at her. A curse? But her shift of mood had done what I could not. Naha exhaled and sat back. A curse is much like a prayer, he said, thoughtful. If you knew his nature well enough. A prayer wouldn't have snatched me from your void, I said, looking down at myself. The length of my limbs was obscene. My palms were half again as large as they had been. I was meant to have small, clever child fingers, not these monstrous paws. And it couldn't have done this to me. Nothing should have done this. Now that Naha had renewed my strength, I could correct the error. I willed myself back to normal. Stop. Nahado's will clamped down on mine like a vice before I could begin the shaping. I froze, startled. It is no longer safe for you to alter your form. No longer safe, he sighed. You do not understand. So he looked into my eyes and made me know what he and Yaney had come to realize in the eight years since everything had gone wrong. There is a line between God and mortal that has nothing to do with immortality. It is material, a matter of substance, composition, flexibility. This is what ultimately made the demons weaker than us. Though some of them had all our power, they could cross this line, become God stuff, but it took great effort, and they could not do it for long. It was not their natural state. Other mortals could not cross the line at all. They were locked to their flesh, aging as it aged, drawing strength from its strength and growing weak with its failure. They could not shape it or the world around them, save with the crude power of their hands and wits. The problem, Nahadoth willed me to know, was that I was no longer quite like a god. The substance of me was somewhere between god stuff and mortality, but I was becoming more mortal as time passed. 
I could still shape myself if I wished, as I had done when I arrived as the cat. But it would not go easily. There might be pain, damage to my flesh, permanent distortion. And there would come a day, perhaps, today, perhaps another, when I would no longer be able to shape myself at all. If I tried then, I would die. I stared at him and felt truly afraid. What are you saying? I whispered, though he had said nothing. Mortal figure of speech. Naha, what are you saying? You are becoming mortal. I was breathing harder. I had not willed myself to breathe harder, or tremble, or sweat, or grow larger, or mature into manhood. My body was doing all that on its own. My body, alien, tainted, out of control. I'm going to die, I said. My mouth was dry. Naha, growing older defies my nature. If I stay like this, if I keep aging, if I trip and fall hard enough, I'll die the way mortals do. We will find a way to heal you. My fists clenched. Don't lie to me. Naha's mask cracked, replaced by sorrow. I remembered ten million nights in his lap, begging him for stories. His beautiful lies, I had called them. He had held me and told me of wonders real and imagined, and I had been so happy to never grow up, so that he could keep lying to me forever. You will grow older, he said. As you leave childhood behind, you will grow weaker. You will begin to require sustenance and rest as mortals do, and your awareness of things beyond mortal senses will fade. You will become fragile. And yes, if nothing is done, you will die. I could not bear the softness of his voice. No matter how hard the words, he was always so soft, always yielding, always tolerant of change. I did not want him to tolerate this. I threw off the blanket and got to my feet. Awkwardly, as my limbs were longer than I was used to and I had too much hair, and stumbled over to Shahar's windows. I put my hands on the glass and leaned on it with all my weight. Mortals rarely did this, I had observed during my centuries in Sky. Even though they knew that Sky's glass was reinforced by magic and inhumanly precise engineering, they could not rid themselves of the fear that just once the glass might break or the pain come loose. I braced my feet and shoved. I needed something in my presence to be unmoving and strong. Something touched my shoulder, and I turned fast, irrationally aching for hard sunset eyes and harder brown arms and brick wall flexibility. But it was only the mortal, Shahar. I glared at her, furious that she wasn't who I wanted, and thought of batting her aside. It was somehow her fault this had happened to me. Maybe killing her would free me. If she had looked at me with compassion or pity, I would have done it. There was none of that in her face, though. Just resentment and reluctance. Nothing at all comforting. She was Aramary. That wasn't something they did. Etempus had failed me. But Etempus's chosen had been magnificently predictable for 2,000 years. I yanked her closer and locked my arms around her so tight that it couldn't have been comfortable for her. She turned her face away and her cheek pressed against my shoulder. She did not bend, though. 
didn't speak, didn't return my embrace. So I held her and trembled and ground my teeth together so that I would not simply start screaming. I glared at Nahadoth through the screen of her curls. He gazed back at me, still and rueful. He knew full well why I had turned away from him, and he forgave me for it. I hated him for that, just as I'd hated Yaney for loving Etempis, and just as I'd hated Etempis for going mad and not being here when I needed him. And I hated all three of them for squandering each other's love when I would give anything, anything, to have that for myself. Go away, I whispered through Shahar's hair. Please. It isn't safe for you here. I laughed bitterly, guessing his intent. If I'm to have only a few more decades of life, Naha, I won't spend them asleep inside you. Thanks. His expression tightened. He was not immune to pain, and I supposed I was driving the knives in deeper than usual. You have enemies. I sighed. I can take care of myself. I will not lose you, Sia, not to death and not to despair. Get out! I clutched Shahar like a teddy bear and shut my eyes, shouting, Get out! Demons take you! Go away and leave me the hells alone! There was an instant of silence. Then I felt him go. The walls resumed their glow. The room felt suddenly looser, airy. Shahar relaxed, minutely against me but not all the way. I kept her against me anyway, because I was feeling selfish and I did not want to care what she wanted. But I was older now, more mature, whether I wanted to be or not. So after a moment, I stopped thinking solely about myself. She stepped back when I let her go, and there was a distinctly wary look in her eyes. What are you going to do? She asked. I laughed, leaning back against the glass. I don't know. Do you want to stay here? I groaned and put my hands on my head, tangling my fingers in all my unwanted hair. I don't know, Shahar. I can't think right now. This is a bit much, all right? She sighed. I felt her come to stand beside me at the window, radiating thought. You can sleep in Deka's room for tonight. In the morning, I'll speak with Mother. I was so soul-numb that this did not bother me nearly as much as it should have. Fine, I said. Whatever, I'll, I'll try not to wake him as I pace the floors and cry. There was a moment's silence that did not catch my attention so much as the ripple of hurt that rode in the silence's wake. Dega isn't here. You'll have the room to yourself. I looked at her frowning. Where is he? Then it occurred to me. Aramary. Dead? No. She didn't look at me and her expression didn't change, but her voice went sharp and contemptuous of my assumption. He's at the Lataria, the Scrivener's College, in training. I raised both eyebrows. I didn't know he wanted to become a Scrivener. He didn't. Then I understood. Aramary, yes. When there was more than one potential heir, the family head did not have to pit them against one another in a battle to the death. She could keep both alive if she put one in a clearly subordinate position. He's meant to be your first scrivener, then. 
She shrugged. If he's good enough, there's no guarantee. He'll prove himself if he can when he comes back. If he comes back. There was something more here, I realized. It intrigued me enough to forget my own troubles for a moment. So I turned to her, frowning. Scrivener training lasts years, I said. Ten or fifteen, usually. She turned to face me, and I flinched at the look in her eyes. Yes, Deka has been in training for the past eight years. Oh, no. Eight years ago. Eight years ago, she said in that same clipped-edged tone. You and I and Deka took an oath of friendship immediately upon which you unleashed a flare of magic so powerful that it destroyed the nowhere stair and much of the under palace. And then you vanished leaving Deka and me buried in the rubble with more bones broken than whole. I stared at her, horrified. She narrowed her eyes, searching my face, and a flicker of consternation diluted her anger. You didn't know. No. How could you not know? I shook my head. I don't remember anything after we joined Han Shahar. You and Deka were wise to ask for my friendship. It should have made you safe from me for all time. I don't understand what happened. She nodded slowly. They pulled us out of the debris and patched us up good as new. But I had to tell mother about you. She was furious that we concealed something so important. And the heir's life had been threatened, which meant someone had to be held accountable. She folded her arms, holding her shoulders ever so slightly stiff. Deka had fewer injuries than I. Our full-blood relative started to hint that Deka, only Deka, never me, might have done something to antagonize you. They didn't come right out and accuse him of plotting to use a godling as a murder weapon, but... I closed my eyes, understanding at last why she'd cursed my name. I'd stolen her innocence first and then her brother. She would never trust me again. I'm sorry, I said, knowing it was wholly inadequate. She shrugged again. Not your fault. I see now that what happened was an accident. She turned away then, pacing across her room to the door that adjoined her suite to the one that had been Descartes. Opening it, she turned back to look at me, expectant. I stayed by the window, seeing the signs clearly now. Her face was impassive, cool, but she had not completely mastered herself yet. Fury smoldered in her, banked for now, but slow burning. She was patient, focused. I would think this a good thing if I hadn't seen it before. You don't blame me, I said, though I'll wager you did until tonight. But you still blame someone. Who? I expected her to dissemble. My mother, she said. You said she was pressured into sending Deka away. Shahar shook her head. It doesn't matter. She said nothing for a moment more, then lowered her eyes. Deka, I haven't heard from him since he left. He returns my letters unopened. Even with my senses as muddled as they were, I could feel the raw wound in her soul where a twin brother had been. A wound like that demanded redress. She sighed. Come on. I took a step toward her and stopped, 
startled as I realized something. Aramary heads and heirs had loathed one another since the bright dawning. Unavoidable, given circumstances, two souls with the strength to rule the world were rarely good at sharing or even cohabitating, for that matter. That was why the family's heads had been as ruthless about controlling their heirs as they were about controlling the world. My eyes flicked to Shahar's odd, incomplete blood sigil. None of the controlling words were there. She was free to act against her mother, even plot to kill her if she wanted. She saw my look and smiled. My old friend, she said. You were right about me, you know, all those years ago. Some things are my nature, inescapable. I crossed the room to stand beside her on the threshold. I was surprised to find myself uncertain as I considered her. I should have felt vindicated to hear her plans of vengeance. I should have said and meant it. You'll do worse before you're done. But I had tasted her childish soul, and there had been something in it that did not fit the cold avenger she seemed to have become. She had loved her brother, enough to sacrifice herself for him. She had sincerely yearned to be a good person. No, I said. She blinked. You're different from the rest of them. I, I don't know why. You shouldn't be, but you are. Her jaw flexed. Your influence, maybe? As gods go, you've had a greater impact on my life than Brightly Tempest ever could. That should have made you worse, actually. <laughs> I smiled a little, though I did not feel like it. I'm selfish and cruel and capricious, Shahar. I've never been a good boy. She lifted an eyebrow and her eyes flicked down. I wore nothing but my ridiculously long hair, which fell to my ankles now that I was standing. My nails, however, had kept to my preferred length. Partial mortality, partial growth? I would live in dread of my first manicure. I thought Shahar was looking at my chest, but my body was longer now, taller. Belatedly, I realized her gaze had settled lower. You're not a boy at all anymore, she said. My face went hot, though I did not know why. Bodies were just bodies, penises were just penises. Yet she had somehow made me feel keenly uncomfortable with mine. I could think of nothing to say in reply. After a moment, she sighed. Do you want food? No, I began. But then my belly churned in that odd, clenching way that I had not felt in several mortal generations. I had not forgotten what it meant. I sighed. But I will by morning. I'll have a double tray brought up. Will you sleep? I shook my head. Too much on my mind, even if I was exhausted, which I'm not. Yet. She sighed. I see. Suddenly, I realized she was exhausted, her face lined and paler than usual. My time sense was returning, murky, sluggish, but functional. So I understood it had been well past midnight when she'd summoned me, cursed me. Had she been pacing the floor herself? her mind cluttered with troubles? What had caused her to remember me, however hatefully, after all this time? Did I want to know? Does our oath stand, Shahar? I asked softly. I didn't mean to harm you. She frowned. Do you want it to stand? 
I seem to recall you were less than thrilled by the idea of two mortal friends. I licked my lips, wondering why I was so uneasy, nervous. She made me nervous. I think perhaps I could use friends under the circumstances. She blinked, then smiled with one side of her mouth. Unlike her earlier smiles, this one was genuine and free of bitterness. It made me see how lonely she was without her brother, and how young. Not so far removed, after all, from the child she had been. Then she stepped forward, putting her hands on my chest, and kissed me. It was light, friendly, just a warm press of her lips for an instant, but it rang through me like a crystal bell. She stepped back, and I stared at her. I couldn't help it. Friends, then, she said. Good night. I nodded mutely, then went into Deka's room. She shut the door behind me, and I slumped back against it, feeling alone and very strange.